I want to begin with a story. Uh, the, message, well, the message title today is called Self-Discipline, The Dangers of Selfish Craving. And the passage we're going to be at is Numbers chapter 11. So you can turn already to Numbers 11. We'll get there in a minute. A man named Roy Gain tells a story. An, an Israeli man talks about a Russian Jew who was allowed to move to Israel during the Soviet period. And this was a very rare occurrence back then. When he landed at the airport in Tel Aviv, a reporter met him. So this reporter was very curious about this Russian Jew coming back to Israel. So first the reporter asked, how was your life in Russia? The new immigrant replied, I do not complain. Then he asked another question, how was the housing situation in Russia? I do not complain, was his reply. So the reporter asked again, what about working conditions? The Russian said, I do not complain. <laughs> Exasperated, the reporter finally asked, if you don't complain about life in Russia, why do you come to Israel? Well, the Russian Jew responded, because in Israel, I can complain. <laughs> the interesting thing about our freedom is that it allows for the possibility of complaining. And after being freed from slavery, the Israelites do a lot of that in the book of Numbers. Before diving into God's word together, I would like to bow and pray once, once more. God, as we look into your word today, I pray that you will open it up to us and speak to our hearts. Lord, I echo the words of the psalmist this morning. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, my strength and my redeemer. And all God's people said, Amen. Now, I don't know how you normally do it on Sunday mornings, um, but I, I have been of the opinion more and more lately uh, that we need to practice together the discipline of reading God's word together. So for the, uh, I had prepared the slideshow for the sake of young parents having the text on the screen because I know when you're dealing with little ones it can be hard to, to keep track of your pages, but with that not working, uh, please turn your Bibles to Numbers chapter 11 and we'll be reading um, almost all of this chapter. Numbers chapter 11, verses 4 to 34. Then the foreign rabble who were traveling with the Israelites began to crave the good things of Egypt, and the people of Israel also began to complain. Oh, for some meat, they exclaimed. We remember the fish we used to eat for free in Egypt, and we had all the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic we wanted. But now our appetites are gone. All we ever see is this manna. The manna looked like small coriander seeds, and it was pale yellow like gum resin. The people would go out and gather it from the ground. They made flour by grinding it with hand mills or pounding it in mortars. Then they boiled it in a pot and made it into flat cakes. These cakes tasted like pastries baked with olive oil. The manna came down on the camp with the dew during the night. Verse 10. Moses heard all the families standing in the doorways of their tents whining, and the Lord became extremely angry. Moses was also very aggravated. And Moses said to the Lord, Why are you treating me, your servant, so harshly? Have mercy on me. What did I do to deserve the burden of all these people? Did I give birth to them? Did I bring them into this world? Why did you tell me to carry them in my arms like a mother carries a nursing baby? How can I carry them to the land you swore to give their ancestors? Where am I supposed to get meat for all these people? They keep whining to me, saying, Give us meat to eat. I can't carry all these people myself. The load is far too heavy. If this is how you intend to treat me, just go ahead and kill me. Do me a favor and spare me this misery. Verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, 
Gather before me seventy men who are recognized as elders of Israel. Bring them to the tabernacle to stand there with you. I will come down and talk to you there. I will take some of the spirit that is upon you, and I will put the spirit upon them also. They will bear the burden of the people along with you, so you will not have to carry it alone. And say to the people, Purify yourselves, for tomorrow you will have meat to eat. You were whining, and the Lord heard you when you cried, Oh, for some meat, we were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat, and you will have it to eat. And it won't be for just a day or two, or for five or ten or even twenty. You will eat it for a whole month until you gag and are sick of it. For you have rejected the Lord who is here among you, and you have whined to him, saying, Why did we ever leave Egypt? But Moses responded to the Lord, There are six hundred thousand foot soldiers here with me, and and yet you say, I will give them meat for a whole month. Even if we butchered all our flocks and herds, would that satisfy them? Even if we caught all the fish in the sea, would that be enough? Then the Lord said to Moses, Has my arm lost its power? Now you will see whether or not my word comes true. Verse 24. So Moses went out and reported the Lord's word to the people. He gathered the 70 elders and stationed them around the tabernacle, and the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to Moses. Then he gave the 70 elders the same spirit that was upon Moses. And when the spirit rested upon him, they prophesied. But this never happened again. Two men, Eldad and Medad, stayed behind in the camp. They were listed among the elders, but they had not gone out to the tabernacle. Yet the spirit rested upon them as well, so they prophesied there in the camp. A young man a young man ran and reported to Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, son of Nun, who had been Moses' assistant since youth, protested, Moses, my master, make them stop. But Moses replied, Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them all. Then Moses returned to the camp with the elders of Israel. Now the Lord sent a wind that brought quail from the sea and let them fall all around the camp. For miles in every direction there were quail flying about three feet above the ground. So the people went out and caught quail all that day and throughout the night and all the next day too. No one gathered less than 50 bushels. They spread the quail all around the camp to dry. But while they were gorging themselves on the meat, while it was still in their mouths, the anger of the Lord blazed against the people, and he struck them with a severe plague. So that place was called Kibroth Hatava, which means graves of gluttony, because there they buried the people who had craved meat from Egypt. So far the reading of God's word. My first point this morning about this passage is that these people who craved meat, they thought more of food than they did of their freedom. In the Exodus story, we read about the Israelites groaning under the torment of slavery, but what we don't read is of them complaining to Pharaoh. In fact, we see the opposite. When Moses told Pharaoh to let the people go, um, he's essentially complaining to Pharaoh here um, that, that Pharaoh should not own these people as slaves, Uh, then Pharaoh makes life miserable for all the Israelites. And they, uh, at first, they just want Moses to go away because Pharaoh's response is to double and triple their workload, to um, have them gather their own straw for the bricks that they make, just making their life extremely miserable. So the people of Israel thought Moses was doing more harm than good and tried to send him away. So in the wilderness, now that they are free, they don't seem to even realize that their lives have improved so much that they actually can complain, like the Russian Jew moving back to Israel. 
Why are you coming to Israel then if you can't complain in Russia? Well, because in Israel, I can complain. It's a sign of freedom. They didn't realize that they had the freedom to do this. And yet we also saw that God did punish, punish them for their selfishness in the midst of this complaining. And this brings a difficult question to mind that we have to wrestle with with this passage. Then what makes God different from Pharaoh? What makes God different from Pharaoh? Well, a scholar named Roy Gain, he explains this well. I like how he put it. He said, God knows that faith has a learning curve. After giving the Israelites evidence on which to base their trust, he then expected them to trust him more and held them accountable for the quality of their faith. After a year of living in total dependence on him, they knew where to get help when they needed it. When grumbling about food arose again, it was not simply complaining, it was rebellious refusal to trust in the Lord. You see, the people of God had witnessed God take care of them again and again, miracle after miracle after miracle in Egypt to set them free from slavery. Then they complained many times against the Lord before the story. They had every reason to trust the Lord. When they needed water, God brought water out of a rock after their complaining. When they needed food, God brought manna from heaven, a food that I'd personally like to try. But that being said, I know I'd probably complain if I ate the same thing every day for so long too. My wife knows that all too well. (laughs) But they had every reason to trust in the Lord and God didn't discipline them in those earlier times for those complaints. Of course they needed water, of course they needed food. And so God is patient with them and he gives to them and he teaches them he is trustworthy and that he has their best interest at heart. But now they were making a big deal out of something that was not a necessity but a luxury. The manna from heaven provided all that they needed to survive, uh, food-wise anyway. In those other cases, God had mercy and he had grace. When they complained because there was no water, God worked a miracle and brought water. When they complained because they had no food and were about to starve, the Lord gave them this manna, the special heavenly bread, which was another miracle. Every one of their needs was provided for by the Lord, though he didn't give them everything they may have wanted. And keep in mind that God wasn't a tyrant over the people, only seeking to use them for selfish purposes. God had the people's best interest in mind. God knew what they needed. As some people put it, God had taken them out of slavery, but now he needed to take the slavery out of the people, which is a much longer and more difficult process. The people needed to be made ready to receive the promised land. They needed the time in the wilderness to prepare them to receive God's rich blessings. They needed to learn to trust the Lord and God had already taught them a lot and given them great reason to trust him. But then they complain and beg for something that was no more than a selfish craving. But they aren't the only ones who complain. The people complain to Moses. And after the people complain, we see that Moses complains as well. Moses complains to God about the people. In fact, we see that this is the passage where Moses says, if you're going to just keep this burden on me, why not kill me now? His despair is great. He would rather die than continue on the way that it's going. And God's response is very interesting in this passage. 
Very often in the New Testament, we talk about how uh, for, for the downtrodden, for the hurting, God gives, gives grace and he um, uplifts them. And then to the Pharisees, Jesus speaks very, very bluntly. And, and his harshest criticism was often for the religious leaders. And so we often think then that it's our job to be harshly critical of our religious leaders too. And we should be held accountable. Absolutely, we should. We should not be the hypocrites like the Pharisees were. But in this passage, we see a different side of God's heart. It doesn't contradict what Jesus did. It's just another side of it, another situation. Moses was not this hypocritical leader like the Pharisees. Moses was more like a burnt-out pastor. To Moses, there was comfort, help, support, and grace. God appointed more leaders to help carry the load, to ease the burden on Moses. God didn't punish Moses for this complaint. Moses was complaining about the difficulty he, he had with the people. But instead of punishing Moses, he did what would be best for both Moses and the people. To the people, however, even though they got what they wanted, it came at a great price. Those who were rebellious and selfish, complaining to the Lord, demanding meat because of these selfish cravings, they weren't complaining just against Moses. Keep in mind, they're complaining to God himself, and there was a very harsh punishment for them. And Moses was the leader of the people, and he knew that their complaint was selfish and rebellious, and he seems... Again, like a little bit like a burnt-out pastor. And if we think that it, this was only ancient Israel that does this kind of thing, I think we'd be kidding ourselves. As a side note, this happens in churches all the time. There are pastors who are doing a pretty good job, even with all the challenges that they face. They are leading the people down God's path, even though it's not always fun. And then the people rebel and they get upset with the pastor. And in our democratic churches, we tend to vote out the pastor over things that are completely outside of their control. And this story shows us how seriously God takes that sort of thing. God has a heart for the burnt out pastors of whiny congregations like Moses was. You know, this past spring, I went hiking with Pastor A. Berg from Staffordville. EMC. We spent three days backpacking in Algonquin Park, the kind of backpacking where you take everything you need in your backpack. There's no cabins. Uh, once our, the campsites we had tried to reserve were taken by someone else and we ended up having to set up camp just in the middle of the bush. Uh, no water taps and only once did we find uh, what could be called an outhouse, although it didn't have walls or a roof and we had to use it in the rain. <laughs> we were roughing it and you know what? There were a lot of hills. The elevation change that we uh, had over the course of those 35 kilometers was almost as much as a 400-kilometer trail in the Rockies. <laughs> a lot of ups and downs. We were almost constantly going up a hill or down a hill, steep cliffs that we had to climb down or climb up. We took turns leading, and I don't know how we decided this. Sometimes Abe would go first, sometimes I would go first. It just was an informal thing that after we take a break, one of us would start first and the other would follow. If we, um, if we got to a hill, you know, we'd both sort of groan a little bit. Until one time, Abe, Abe was leading, and I was behind him. So Abe was our fearless leader, and we got to another hill. So I, me being a, a, a cheeky kind of person, I said, another hill? Abe, you are a terrible leader. I didn't want to climb another big hill. 
Why are you leading us here, Abe? I gave him a hard time all the way up that hill about his poor leadership abilities. (laughs) He knew what I was getting at, that I was just teasing him. And of course, the path was the only way for us to get home. If we strayed from that path, we could get hopelessly lost in the wilderness and run out of food and possibly die. This path had nothing to do with Abe's leadership ability and everything to do with where the path led us to. Sometimes God leads us down a difficult path and we often think that the best way off of those paths is to get a new leader who will lead us down an easier path. But make no mistake, if your pastor is following God's path, there will be some hills to climb, there will be some valleys to descend into and there will be some beautiful mountaintop moments where you just sit and enjoy the view. And if you think about it from a big picture kind of perspective, you will remember that God has taken you out of the slavery of sin and he has given you new life and freedom in Christ. Let us not think more of the trivial things of this life than we do of God's great gift of salvation. We like to focus on these little things that irritate us and completely forget the giant gift that God has given us in saving us from our sins. Now the Israelites, they thought more of their food than they did of their freedom. And I hope that you and I will not make the same mistake. My next point is that just because God allows something to happen doesn't make it his will. Just because God allows something to happen doesn't make it his will. Now this at first sounds pretty controversial. Even as I read it, I was like, wow, that's a controversial point, isn't it? And yet... As we look in the scriptures, there are so many stories where this is the case. This truth comes out again and again through the pages of scripture. There are too many for us to read through together today. We could spend days reading these stories from the Old Testament to the New. So I'll summarize just a few of them. Think of 1 Samuel 8. The people of Israel are demanding a king and God says that this is not a good idea. He tells them that a king will take their sons and send them to war to be killed on the battlefield. A king will take their daughters to be workers in his palace. A king will take the best of all their fields and vineyards and give them to his attendants. A king will impose crippling taxes on the people. All these bad things would come because of a king and God says, do not do it. But still, the people demanded a king, so the Lord allowed this and gave them a king. And all that God warned them about came to pass. And when Samuel felt rejected by the people, the Lord said, it is not you that they have rejected Samuel, it is me. They rejected the Lord in their demand for a king. Could God still work? Well, sure he could. But this is a harder path, a more painful path. I wonder what it would have been like if the people would have listened to God and had him as their king. And while it seemed like the people were rejecting Samuel, again, God tells us, that they were really rejecting him. Or there's a story in 1 Kings about a bunch of false prophets, and they weren't concerned much with the word of the Lord. Uh, They were more concerned with pleasing the king. But there was one who was true to God's message named Micaiah. The king was also wanting to go to war, and, and, and the king wanted God's approval for this. So all the other false prophets promised him that he would be successful. Yes, of course, go to war. The Lord is with you. You will be successful in this endeavor. And then they asked, well, wasn't there one more prophet? And the king says, oh, not him. He never tells me what I want to hear. And then this other king says, well, let's hear what he has to say. So he comes, and at first he says, sure, go to war, you'll win, whatever. And the the, the king sees that he's not being sincere, and he says, no, tell me only what the Lord has told you. And so Micaiah prophesied the truth, that they would lose the battle 
terribly. And the king got angry. And then Micaiah told the king more about what the Lord had allowed. Since these false prophets didn't want to hear from the Lord, Micaiah tells them that the Lord allowed a lying spirit to speak to them, to tell them what they wanted to hear instead of the truth. They weren't going to listen to the Lord anyway, so the Lord allowed a lying spirit to speak to them. These so-called prophets were so far from God, only wanting to have nice things to tell the king. And they were so far away from him that God said, fine, if you aren't going to listen to me, then you can listen to this lying spirit and see how that works out for you. Does that make it God's will for prophets to listen to the voices of these lying spirits instead of God's? Well, of course not. But sometimes when we are dead set on doing something wrong, God gives us the free will to choose whether or not we will follow his plan. If you want other stories of this, look at the story of Hezekiah or the rampant corruption and idolatry of ancient Israel that we read about in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, Hosea, and other books of the Bible. Now this kind of thing is even mentioned in the New Testament, and I want to read one of those passages from Romans 1.24. It says, Therefore God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. It says that God gave them over to their sinful desires. This is what was going on when the people asked for a king. It was what was happening when the false prophets didn't listen to God, and it is what happened in our story in Numbers when the people demanded meat. God allowed them to get what they wanted, even though there were consequences for it. Sometimes God says yes to you, even when it's what is bad for you, because you're demanding it and they're going to do it anyway. And then he tries to teach us a lesson in the midst of all of that. If we are more concerned for what we want than what God wants, then we have made an idol of our own desires. Let me repeat that. If we are more concerned for what we want than with what God wants, then we have made an idol of our own desires. This is truly at the heart of selfishness. When we are selfish, we are putting ourselves ahead of others. We are putting ourselves ahead of God's word, and we are putting ourselves in the place of God in our lives. We make our own desires the object of our worship. No longer do we do our everything to follow God's will. We do our everything to satisfy our sinful cravings. Sure, we might not bow down at a statue. We might not go to some other temple and offer burnt offerings there to some false god. But instead of living to serve God, we live to serve ourselves. We live to serve our own ego. We live to serve our own vanity. We live to serve our own pleasures and pride. And as we do this, we are living in direct rebellion against God. When David committed adultery with Bathsheba, uh, and the prophet Nathan confronts David in 2 Samuel 12. And Nathan says, Why did you despise the, the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? Now, David committed adultery. It's not like he trampled on a Bible or spit on its pages. So what is Nathan getting at? Why does he say you have despised the word of the Lord? Why does he say that? When we do things that we know go against God's word, we are showing by our actions that we think our desires are more important than God's word. Sure, God said it, but my desires are more important Sure, God told me not to, but I want to. I deserve this. 
I've worked so hard, why can't I have this one little indulgence? And so we despise the word of the Lord, maybe not through our words, but through our actions and through our lives. I must remind us as well that I'm not talking about our salvation here. We are not saved by our works. We are saved not by us being perfect. We are saved by Jesus being perfect and because of what he did for us on the cross. But as we live our lives, there are these moments when we can choose to do things God's way or we can choose to do things our own way. And if we want to avoid the dangers that come with rebellion and selfishness, we should choose God's way. We should, cho- we should choose to abandon the idol of our selfish cravings and cling to God. Who of you, as parents, do not discipline your children when they act in a rebellious way? Maybe what they're asking for might not be all that bad in and of itself. Eating meat, of course, isn't all that bad. Eating quail was permitted for God's people. But when we do it in rebellion, a good father or a good mother disciplines their child. Every one of us does this. We know sort of instinctively that this is what helps make children into good, responsible adults. And so the Lord, too, when we go down these selfish paths, when we have these selfish desires and we demand it and we are just dead set against doing what the Lord does, sometimes he allows it, knowing there will be consequences for us. My next point is that we should be careful of what we demand from God because you just might get it. Be careful what you demand from God because you just might get it. As we've talked about, sometimes God allows us to get what we want even though it isn't really what we need. Like when your toddler keeps grabbing the lemon nut of your drink at the restaurant and you keep telling them it's sour, you're not going to like it. But eventually... They keep grabbing and you let them try it and then you see them make one of those hilarious little sour faces. I always tried to have my uh, video on on my camera to catch that. (laughs) And then most of the time they no longer uh, want the lemon. And that's sort of what's going on here with the people of Israel. This isn't good for them to live in such rebellion. They need to learn to trust in the Lord far more than they need meat to eat. Or it, it, it's sort of like how my son knows that he can't just take food from wherever and eat it without asking. He knows this. He needs to ask before he eats something because he might get into the cake that mom was saving for dessert later. Or he might get into the cookies that were made to bring to a family who's sick or something like that. He knows he needs to ask and, and we will give him a snack at our discretion. But one day, one day, he didn't ask. And he thought, it's a vegetable. I can eat vegetables. And we had just harvested some vegetables from our garden. And he took this bright orange pepper and took a bite out of it. And he came to me screaming because his mouth hurt. And at first I had no idea what was going on. He said, juice, juice, juice. And there was already juice in his cup, but I guess his mouth hurts too much to realize it. And I said, there's already juice in there. Take a drink. Okay, so he drank it. And he said, is it better? And I said, I I don't know what you're talking about, but I I can't tell you. Is, Is it better? He goes, no. And he starts screaming. And then I asked what happened. He said, I ate the pepper. And I look on the counter and that pepper was a habanero with a bite out of it. <laughs> so we got him some chocolate milk and that helped cool the burning in his mouth. Uh, even though then his lips, he said, Daddy, well, my lips, my lips now. His mouth was okay, but his lips were still burning. 
you know, I didn't want him to have it. It wasn't something that was good for him, and he knew he wasn't supposed to take it. But you know what? I couldn't control him. He has his own will, and he was set to getting into those peppers because he didn't happen to like the supper that we made for him. But in getting what he wanted this time, it taught him to be more careful about selfishly just taking whatever he wanted. And he wanted nothing to do with those little orange peppers after that. The next time he wanted a snack, he came to ask first. We already looked at one passage in Romans, and later in this same chapter, Paul says more about this. In Romans 1.28, he says, Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. God isn't approving of their behavior, but if we are so set on walking away from God, God lets us. If you persist in your selfishness, if you continue on demanding your own selfish ways, God might allow you to get what you want, even though it might bring you great pain in the end. That is the thing with free will. In order for us to truly love God and in order for us to even understand what it means for God to love us, there has to be free will in this world. And along with free will, it means there's the possibility that God allows for the possibility for us to choose to say no to him. So if we persist in chasing after selfishness and sin, God might just let you do it. But then you will have to live with the consequences of that. I know one man who made the mistake of buying a house that he really couldn't afford. I am sure that when they bought it, they thanked the Lord for their new home and viewed it as a blessing from God. But it didn't take long, just a little ways down the road, and they found out they couldn't actually maintain the payments on this house. They overmortgaged themselves. They were unable to keep the house. They went into bankruptcy. And this is a remarkably common example that might hit a bit too close to home for some people here. I know many people face bankruptcy because of recessions and all of that, but this wasn't one of those cases. This was a case of over-mortgaging themselves. But in choosing this unwise decision, it made for a lot of heartache down the road. And this particular man, he talks very openly about how big of a mistake it was and how he didn't see the error of his ways until it was too late, until after they lost their house. And now he tells his story openly in the hopes of preventing people from making the same mistake that he did. So be careful what you demand from God because you just might get it and it might not be as good as you thought. You might want that grass that's greener on the other side, but that greener grass may just be poison to you. My last point today is that we should seek the Lord's will in our lives, not our own will. This really is the big application of this story. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where the chili meets the cheese. I like that one. Don't make the mistake of ancient Israel and allow your selfish cravings to get in the way of your worship of God. Don't make your own desires your idol, but only worship the Lord and seek his will. Seek the Lord's will in your life and not your own. In 2 Timothy 4, 2-5, We read that Paul says, Preach the word of God. Be prepared whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. So this is Paul writing to Timothy, who's the young pastor. 
Then Paul says, For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. But you should keep a clear mind in every situation. Don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Work at telling others the good news and fully carry out the ministry God has given to you. This was Paul's final letter to Timothy. And he warns Timothy about what was to come, about how people will no longer follow the truth. But he tells Timothy to remain faithful in his calling as a pastor. And I want to urge you in the same way this morning. Not many of you here are considered pastors or ministers. But yet this applies to all of us. I urge you to set aside your own selfish desires. You know what those are. When I say selfish desire or selfish craving, each one of you probably has something that comes to mind from your own life. I don't know what that is, and I know it's different from person to person. But let's set aside those selfish desires. Let's listen to the wholesome truth of God's word. Let's follow God's path, even though it is the narrow way that is often much more difficult. Let's not be scared of climbing those hills. Let's not be scared of descending into those valleys when it is the Lord's path for us. In the end, you will be glad that you did. Let me close with the words of Jesus in Matthew, 20, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? You have little faith. So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Let's pray. God, I am so grateful to you for your word and how it shows us that the problems we face today are not new and that we have examples of people who have gone through these things before. God, I ask for your help so that each one of us could understand what this might mean for our lives. We confess to you, God, that sometimes we worship at the feet of our own desires instead of at your throne. And for this, Lord, we ask for your forgiveness. Help us repent of this, Lord. Help us to have ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to understand. May your word be written on our hearts and may each one of us be your instrument to be used for your glory. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, Amen.